First Timothy chapter six speaks uh, with a tone deaf voice to the woke crowd of our day. Let me start off and get your blood up a little bit. Paul is not going to say slavery is an evil institution. He's going to say you Christians who are saved by grace need to bear up in such an institution for the gospel. That's what he starts with. Well, let's just read it. I'll read, I'll put it up on the screen from the New American Standard. It says, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. That sentence is now going to be derided by the culture we live in where the new morality knows better than the word of God. And it's always, I just always want to present this to you. There's what the world says and there's what God's word says. And you have to pick, pick one. They'll go up the street and try to join those two together so that we all just had a nice musical experience, right? That's called Christian liberalism and it's not Christian, but it is liberalism. You have to pick what God's word says or what the world says, but what the world says sounds like how I feel. You found your sin nature and Satan's world system. That's all. Congratulations. We have to decide. Verse two, those who are belie- have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. Exhort. The word preach, keruso, no, it's exhort, encourage. It's a parakaleo. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited, understands nothing. Okay, so you have God's word and the world, right? So God's word is the first and last word on the matter. Not David Rosalind, God's word. And then you have what the world says. And so now God's word is telling you where the world is, where the heart of the world is. He's conceited, understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Who said the new American standard doesn't sound rich? Is it well written? Oh, it's just not hard. It's hard, too hard to read. That's really a beautiful turn of phrase. And it's very close to the Greek. All you have to do is rearrange most of the sentences and make them go backwards because Greek is a different order from English. That's the only thing you have to do. <laughs> you end up with this translation, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when, when accompanied by contentment for we have brought nothing into the world. So we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Did you see what just happened? We went from slavery to people who reject God's word and are arrogant to the question of pursuing wealth, which is where that all went to, is that they see godliness as a means of great gain. And now we're talking about contentment regarding material possessions. What do these things all have to do with each other? It's all economics. Your slavery or free status as an economic category has other factors too, but what I'm saying is economics is really important. What you do with your time, with your energy, with your resources, that's economics. Scarce resources that have multiple alternative uses is how Thomas Sowell in basic economics defines it. 
scarce resources that have multiple alternative uses. That's the question of economic considerations. And when you're talking about slavery, it's all your resources. It's your life, it's your time, it's your energy. Now, we're talking about wealth and money and possessions and property. Those who want to get rich in verse 9 fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. May God add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. I just want you to see that if you read the text in a casual way without the intention of figuring out what is the relationship of the components in the passage, you might miss that overriding theme in this case of economics. The Summit Ministry, founded by David Noble in Manitou Springs, Colorado, is a two-week camp that people will send their kids to as a preparation for college. They'll finish high school, generally that was the idea, and send them to a two-week training ground where they spend something like 10 hours a day in classroom. It's college prep, but it's Christian worldview prep. It goes through all the categories of worldview, the way Noble lined them out, David Noble lined them out. Now it's headed by a man named Jeff Myers, but it was founded by David Noble. His book, the great book was Understanding the Times. It's been updated. I, I prefer the earlier one. There's, a, there's less uh, old earth creationism in it. There's less, uh, there's more pre-trib rapturism in it because Noble was a pre-trib guy, probably young earth. Myers is not. But, but in terms of Christian worldview, what does the Bible say about philosophy, ethics, politics, economics, biology, history. These are the categories of thought. Um, we, we got most of them. These are the categories of thought. And then you have five or six key worldviews in the world and how they address these topics. Theology is one of them. There's the Christian worldview. There's the Marxist Leninist worldview. There's the, uh, the, uh, the new age or uh, cosmic humanism. There's the secular humanist worldview, and these will all overlap a little bit. There's the, there's the Muslim worldview. Islam has its own worldview and it's distinct from these others. And there are places where it will correspond with a Christian worldview and many, many places where it will not correspond with a Christian worldview. And they're all different. And, and so figuring these things out, so you could see why in that chart of 10 topics with six worldviews, 60 classes, I would imagine. You can see why you'd spend two weeks in class and then take the kids to town or, or, or out for an outing or some excursion or something to blow off some steam, but back to the classroom. That's what the summit is. And I haven't uh, kept up with it. I have friends that used to work there. And uh, these types of worldview trainings are, are helpful because they'll address the areas of practical thought in life from a biblical perspective. See, if I say economics in church on Sunday morning in most pulpits, people will say, why are we talking about this? We came here to have an emotional experience. We came here to have a feeling. And you're talking about economics and we don't really want to think about that. If I wanted to study economics, I'd go to class and study economics. But the thing is, what the Bible will do is say, forget about what you want. Let's let God have his way and tell you what he wants you to know of himself. And then he'll start talking about economics. And the thing is, it matters. It matters how we think about it. I'm not going to speak much more about economics today, but this is what we're covering today in terms of the Apostle Paul teaching on slavery 
rejection of God's word and the love of wealth. Slavery, the rejection of God's word and the love of wealth. So let's jump into it. I think I will start by calling verses one and two, the higher purpose of honor. Verses one and two of first Timothy chapter six show you the higher purpose of honor. And when I say the higher purpose, I mean, God's purpose, God's purpose for why you would render honor to someone. Does anybody on the outset, on the outset from what we've already read in verses one and two, do you have any idea what the higher purpose that God has for how you treat other people? What that purpose is? The way you behave toward your fellow man or woman. Do you know why God thinks that's important or what is behind your motivation and how you treat other people? I'll give you a hint. It's the Apostle Paul speaking. He has a summary theme driving everything he says. And it's the Lord Jesus and his great commission. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the Christian life of Paul. And he is thinking not of whether it's fair or unfair to be enslaved. He's thinking about the salvation of these people with whom you're involved. That's Paul's interest. So he equips those under the yoke of slavery to bear witness for Jesus Christ. The way you treat people may have a great deal to do with where they spend eternity. The way you treat people may have a great deal to do with where they spend eternity. So don't be dismissive of, dismissive of people. Don't invalidate people with where they keep saying things that you don't like. You know, well, that's just stupid. Maybe it is. You don't have to invalidate the person if you disagree with their, their idea, right? Invalidate, that's a word. It means that you're right, rejecting the person and failing to grab common ground where there is common ground. Some will say there is no common ground between the believer and the unbeliever, but it's not true. There's just no common ground in how we think. The common ground between believer and unbeliever is that we're both made in God's image. We're made to bear God's image and God wants us to come to know him through his son. That's the common ground. Jesus paid for their sins and yours. That's the common ground. This is someone for whom Christ died. That's the common ground. And so when you think about the cross, you bring God into the conversation and you remember why you're here. Now you, you know what we're talking about in chapter six, verse one. As many as, uh, as are under the yoke as slaves. As many as are, as are under the yoke as slaves. Does Paul say it's good or bad here to be under the yoke? He doesn't say. Elsewhere he says it's better not to be enslaved. Don't enslave yourself. If you can see, be free, seek freedom. It's better. That's what he says to slaves. But he's talking now to people enslaved. I was thinking about this in my study as I was working through here. As I will do. It seems like at the judgment seat of Christ, we get different outcomes. Is everybody with me on that? Receive recompense for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. It's not like everybody gets the same, you know, participation trophy at the judgment seat of Christ. There are, there is, there is something we all get, but there's, there, in terms of rewards, the works that you did in the power of the spirit, God is going to recompense at the judgment seat of Christ. I think that that makes for a differential between us. And if you think about the nature of, an, of a one world thousand year administration, 
which will then go on into the new heavens and new earth for eternity. A one world administration over all the nations with one king administering all the nations. If you think about what that would look like, what that administration would look like, that would be a lot of people in various echelons of responsibility. You know, I'm going for dog catcher. You understand? I think there are going to be some Roman slaves who are going to rule mightily in the coming kingdom. They're going to be given many cities as we have in the parables and for example um, in uh, Luke 19. I think that you're going to see people that were penniless yet she gave all that she had who are going to be great magnified. John the Baptist is the greatest man born of woman on earth. Greatest human being of course besides Jesus Christ Jesus says. He's the greatest you'll ever see and he's poor. Now he's not the church he died before the church began. So I don't know how that works. The Bible doesn't address that. But my point is, be careful about assuming that because of this life where people are, this has anything to do with, with what they have coming to them in eternity. We read in James chapter five that the poor have been made rich in faith and heirs of the coming kingdom. So I, I look forward to seeing the flip. All those thousands of early Christian slaves in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was rife with slavery, with Roman-style slavery. Slaves would include professions like teachers, like physicians. Today, we would consider upper middle and, and higher and, and aristocrats. Sometimes this could, these would be people sold into slavery to do this, or they'd sell the, their services, sell themselves into slavery. It was different in some ways from what, what was practiced here through um, the chattel slavery. But in, in other ways, no, there were lots of similarities. But the point is, this is the bottom of the economics. This is the bottom of the bottom when you're a slave. And it's an undesirable thing to be, but Paul says as many as, uh, as are under the yoke as slaves. Notice this, people who would be considered furniture People who would be considered just part of the environment that we are living our lives in because the, the, the masters, the, these people exist to, to comfort us, to please us, to satisfy us, to do whatever we want. These people aren't addressed. These people aren't considered, concerned. The word of God is now going to focus directly on them. Paul, the great Roman citizen, is going to say, I have a message for you, slaves. It's interesting how the New Testament deals with slavery. This is a topic that will uh, catch in the throat of the wokeness of our day. Because listen, listen, this is why. Because the modern approach to race, racism, that's the new racism that they call anti-racism, it's just racism, that we're dividing over whether we're black or white. This new racism starts with a disbelief in God and therefore disbelief in eternity, and therefore a focus on only your temporal circumstances. And Paul has a completely different starting point. It's a completely different way of looking at the world. This is why we'll never get this together. And it's not, these aren't white thoughts or black thoughts. These are God's thoughts. As many as are under the yoke as slaves, they are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Oh, well, it's, a, it's an authority issue. And so there is the sense of 
paying honor to these people. But notice why. Why would the slave reckon his master as worthy of all honor? Now, Paul's only talking to Christians. He's only talking to Timothy, who's equipping saints in the church in Ephesus. So Christian slaves, this is how to think about it. Is this going to be applicable to you at some point in your life? I don't know. Keep watching the news. Every time I hear free college. Yeah. What do you mean free college? The more of the money, the more of your money they take and the more they inflate your value, your wealth away, the less you have of your own and it belongs to someone else. And remember, that's not exactly the same as slavery, but slavery is the stealing of someone's productivity to use for your own purposes. They're to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the doctrine not be slandered or blasphemed. I, I transliterated blaspheme because in the Greek, it's blasphemeo, B-L-A-S-P-H-E. You can see that's blasphemy. It doesn't mean speaking against God. It means speaking ill of God's word. So slander would be a better translation. Now, why do you treat as a slave your master with all honor? Why do you treat him a certain way or her? Why do you behave a certain way toward her? Because you represent the Lord Jesus Christ and his word that is coming into the world through the inspiration of the spirit and the apostle Paul. You represent Jesus in this lowly estate. And so you conduct yourself as one who represents him toward these people. It may not be that you find yourself sold into slavery by your brothers, thrown into prison after some successful time as a household slave, finally brought out of prison and put as the second in command of the country. That may not happen in your lifetime, but that arc of experience is your destiny. You are suffering now under the yoke of being the dregs of society. According to scripture, we are the fools of the world, but God's foolishness makes the wisdom of the world foolish. And you'll be rejected and you'll suffer in all these ways, but you are standing to inherit eternity with Jesus Christ. That's your destiny. And so the arc of the life of Joseph is very, very much like your life. If you take the whole of it, that I will come to rule with Christ eventually. Having that perspective as God's free man, despite being in chains, you as a slave can treat your master with honor so that God's word not be slandered, so that the name of God not be slandered. It's only a bitter pill to swallow if you don't accept that we're on mission. If you don't see your life as part of God's work that he wants to do through you. But when you let yourself go, and you say, it's not about me, it's about him. Now you can see how this works. And verse two, but those who have believers as masters must not despise kataphroneo, to look down upon, to think less of, with, to think of them with contempt. You don't despise your masters. That's not a problem, is it? Let's put it in management labor. Let's bring it into our current experience. The boss. 
you're, you're the worker, they're the boss. They cannot do half of what you can do, yet they have all the power. And they, and they squander it and they waste your time and they're stupid. And I'm talking objectively, I don't mean this is, these are the things you tell yourself, you know, to make yourself feel better. I mean, this is really what's going on. And that's how it is. And you've got a broken human that you're working for. Ugh, it's awful. I'm not surprised people want to stay home after the, the reopening. You know, I can still work from home. I'm sorry that the, the Zoom message is kind of garbled. I'm, I'm, I'm losing, I'm, uh, hang up <laughs> on the Zoom meeting. If you have a boss that's awful, it's often easy to look around the office and see people have that look in their eye. Uh, what an idiot. Uh, Michael Scott uh, built a, uh, a franchise in Dunder Mifflin Paper Company being an idiot and having his people despise him. That's a stupid but enjoyable show of clowns called The Office. Ripped off by an even more enjoyable British comedy called The Office. Those who have believers as masters must not despise them or look down upon them with contempt because they're brothers. Well, this would mean that I'm not supposed to look at any of my brothers in Christ with contempt or despise any of them. So uh, back up a little bit. <laughs> I mean, we, we know this, right? But it's good to reinforce it. You're supposed to look at one another as fellow heirs of life. First, first Peter chapter three, verse seven, gentlemen, as we talked about yesterday and every men's huddle says that your wife is a fellow heir of life. And so she's different from you. She's a weaker vessel as, as Paul says, or as someone weaker, that is, she is not rough and tumble like men. She is more delicate and sensitive by God's design. And there's a strength that comes with that, but it's different. So you don't, you don't treat her like one of the guys, or like you would treat yourself, you're gentle with her because you don't want your prayers to be hindered because she's your heavenly father's daughter. And he's not pleased with you when you mistreat his daughter. And that's, that's husbands and wives, fellow heirs of life. This is how we treat one another with honor. And so you don't look down on especially your boss if they're a Christian because they're brothers, but rather all the more these slaves must, because, uh-oh, serve. This translation just in. But all the more they must serve because those who receive the benefit of the good work are believers and beloved. If your boss tells you they want you to do something and you do a really good job, one of your motivations is God is your real boss. But another motivation is you want to, to help out your brother in Christ. Do you know what good that comes for you and your work? Even if you have an immature Christian that's petty and self-centered and, and a bad boss. If you have that, but you're recognizing their position in Christ and their position as the boss and their authority, do you understand that Part of your motivation should be to bless the person you're working for. It's a totally different way of thinking. This is not, if I don't do the work, then I'll, then I'll get beaten, as the slave would think. This is, I want to do a beautiful job because I want to help my brother in Christ. 
if you think this way, if you become this kind of Christian integrity, not only will God be pleased with you, but there's an ancillary benefit that you will do good work and it'll be pleasing to your boss and they'll, you'll be promoted. Unless you're in a circumstance of testing where God is saying, keep trusting me, keep doing it. And that happens. But as, a, as an employer, just think about if you're the boss and the person consistently turns in excellent work on time and under budget or whatever. Give them more work. Well, they're going to need more resources to do more work. Well, give them some, some assistance. Give them some people. That's promotion. You see what I mean? And, and you want to be that person. And so it's a consistent view. This has been called the Protestant work ethic, but it's actually a Pauline work ethic. Getting back to the Bible after the medieval period, after the Reformation, getting back to the Bible resulted in this Protestant work ethic. And this is one of the explanations for why the Europeans were able to climb out of the mud and start industry. How did the Industrial Revolution happen? How did this, well, part of it is the Protestant work ethic, which again is biblical, not white culture or not black culture. It's biblical and biblically informed culture. Regardless of melanin content in your skin or what continent you're born in on. So this is a totally different way of thinking about who you're working for. These things teach and encourage didasco and parakaleo teach didasco and to encourage parakaleo or to exhort to come alongside or be called alongside. I'm calling what Paul does here. Your temporal mission context. YTMC your temporal mission context. Sometimes it's good to, um, to get out of the, the comparison and the, 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 the constant hamster wheel on our minds of slavery and how this will be received. And to think about what Paul's actually talking about. This is your temporal mission context. First of all, your economic circumstances are not the focus of your life. With no respect to that wicked and dead old white man, Karl Marx. The only respect we can pay to him is he was made in God's image and God sent his son to die for his sins. But Marx's whole theme after becoming an atheist was that it's all economics. It's not for us, all economics. And that I believe is one of the key components of being a capitalist. It's not all about economics, but we do insist with God on the protection of private property. Your economic circumstances, whether in a Marxist frame or in a national socialist frame, Nazism, that's a left ideology in my, in my view, whatever horror that you're, you're facing, the fascism uh, of our current, um, we're, we're with the government and here to help. You, you can't see this as the focus of your life. That is difficult for us. The Lord Jesus teaches on it in Matthew 6. It is always going to be a challenge. Just as soon as the kids figure out that money is the way our parents do the things that they do. And when they say no to me, I could say yes if I had money. Just as soon as that, that takes hold, I'm finding, this can become a huge focus for the children. And then it's there for the, for the rest of their lives. And it's all about money. It's all about money. Ever know somebody that talks about money too much? Yeah, like everybody you know. It's a problem. It can't be the focus. Second, Jesus Christ is the focus of your life. That's what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter six. You can't serve two masters, just one. So choose wisely. Third, your economic circumstances 
are your temporal mission context. Part of it. Temporal. What does that mean? What's temporal? In time. Here and now. Not there and then, here and now. Temporal. Meaning temporary, meaning as, as Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, life is very short, it's a vapor. Meaning it's here today and really is not a, a matter tomorrow. You can't take it with you, Paul will say. Temporal. What's mission? Where did I get the idea of mission? Everything Paul says, because Paul is on mission, because he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave us the mission called the Great Commission. And we find that in Matthew chapter 28. Let's start over. Why did I get mission? We're reading Paul. And Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let's all say it together. Paul's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave us a mission. And we call it the Great Commission. And we find that in Matthew chapter 28. And for bonus points, anybody know what verses? You do, but you're like, no, I'm not going to say. Look, I'm not asking you to stand up and shake hands with each other and tell each other you love each other, even though you do, even though you already have <laughs> without being told. No, it's, it's Matthew 28, 19 and 20, really 18 through 20, where Jesus says the last words we have in the gospel of Matthew, the primer on discipleship written 30 years into the church age, at least 30 years after the beginning of the church age. I, the, the, it dazzles me, it baffles me how people try to dodge the great commission. My forebears didn't. Lewis Perry Chafer assumed it. Your economic circumstances are your temporal mission context. Meaning, let me, let, me, let me bring it right down. Cookies on the bottom shelf. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can be more effective as a slave than as a wealthy man. If that's what God has for you, you can be more effective. The question is, God, where are the doors open? Am I saying seek slavery? No, I'm saying wherever you find yourself, that's your mission context. Fourth, what is your temporal mission context? Context means the circumstance in which you will, will operate. Well, part of your mission context is your marital status, single or married. I can't really make disciples unless I get married. Got to get married, got to get married, got to get... No, read, read 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. You don't have to get married. If you are married, it turns out you have to stay married. That's, that's the most important thing I can say about marriage is, as I said at your wedding, you're stuck. Jesus has stuck you together because he says in Matthew 19, whom God has joined together, let no man separate, right? So, so your marital status, well, I could serve the Lord if I just wasn't married. No, your temporal mission context is whether you're, uh, whether you're single or whether you're married. That, that's that where you are. And does it, well, if I get married, will I still be able to make disciples? Yes. Did Peter make disciples? Yes. He didn't have a wife. Did Paul make disciples? I'm sorry. He had a wife. He had, Peter had a wife. Did Paul make disciples? Yes. He didn't have a wife. That's at the point in which he's writing. And there's a theory that he's a widower. The idea that he was the perpetual you know, celibate. I, I don't know about that. that. The Bible doesn't say that. But he does tell the widowers and the widows that he wishes they could be as he is, remaining unmarried. Now, your marital status, and I know this is touching 
your personal life in a way that I don't know. And it touches my life in a way you don't know. Because only two people that are married and God know what's really going on. And the kids know better than most and more than you'd like them to know. But, but your marital status is not your life. It's not the focus of your life. It is your temporal mission context. And you can serve God, though married, or you can serve God, though single, and making disciples. Your family status, whether you have children, we just can't really make disciples because we don't have a bunch of kids. Or we have too many kids and we'll never really be able to be serious about disciple making until the kids are gone. All these excuses are just the context in which you serve. Oh, how I could serve the Lord if I didn't have these chains, this enslavement. But it turns out that it's the chains in, in Philippians, I'm sorry, in, in Acts chapter 16 with the Philippian jailer that give Paul the context for the open doors. The chains fall off, the doors swing open, but the doors that we're looking for are the Philippian jailer and those that are evangelized in that situation, right? Th these are our temporal missionary mission context. Economic status, as we're talking about in this context, your nationality. If I was only an American, I could make some disciples. Well, if I go to a foreign country, I can make disciples. Well, it turns out that there is, there is, if I was preaching to you with the Scottish, if I, was, if I had motive of, a, of an exotic way of talking, that's more Irish kind of sounding, maybe. I can't do it. If I had a little bit of exotic, maybe it would get a better hearing. It happens. It really, it really does happen. Ask Peter Marshall when you get to heaven, when you see him. The great Peter Marshall, Scotsman who preached in America. I, I tried it. I tried to come up here and, and have an exotic accent for y'all. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter where you are, what nation you're from or what nation you're in, wherever you find yourself, that's your mission context. As soon as I get back from this deployment, I'll be about making disciples, says the army guy, says the Navy guy. No, you're right where you are. That's your temporal mission context. What job you do when I finally retire, then I can get serious. There'll never be enough time or money to serve the Lord. And on the other hand, from God's perspective, you have all the time and all the money you need to serve the Lord. I'm sick. I can't serve the Lord. I got to go to dialysis three times a week. It's going to be four times a week next month. I can't serve the Lord. What about that person next to you stuck for three hours in dialysis? Now I know about this because I've heard, I've heard of believers who have to go to this and they're able to encourage believers and tell non-believers on dialysis about the Lord Jesus. It's their temporal mission context. This is how I'm going to serve the Lord today. These are the details and factors of your lifestyle. It's your temporal mission context. It's not your life. It's the setting in which you live your life. You with me? And that's, that's what Paul's doing here. The Marxists want to rearrange the furniture. They want to change all the structures. They want to tear everything down and build it back up. We'll work within whatever structure. We'll work. Now we have a brain in our heads. We know it'd be better. It'd be better to make bricks with straw than make them without straw. But we'll do whatever the Lord puts on our, on our plate. Sixth. In any and every situation, you can and must be on mission. This is the attitude of the Apostle Paul. This is what Jesus says. And how can I say you can and must? Because Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, from the position of that exalted authority that the Father has delegated to the Son, 
Go and make disciples of all the nations. That's your job. He tells the disciples who become the apostles. They're disciples already. He tells the disciples to make disciples. What do disciples do? They make more disciples. What do those disciples do by definition of being disciples? They make more disciples by evangelism and teaching. In every situation you can and must be on mission if you're going to abide in Christ, if you're going to walk with him. Y'all, I'm putting heavy emphasis on mission today and every day and all the time. And I'm trying, I'm doing my best to, to make more space in the pews here for everybody to feel more comfortable by, by emphasizing this because it gets, it gets convicting. Well, I don't want to go hear about that some more. It's a big mission rally. Well, it's a synthesis of the entire New Testament. And it asks the question, makes you look at yourself. What am I doing with my life? What am I going to do? Who am I going to be? This isn't for those other people that need to hear about being on mission. This is for me. This is for all of us. The biggest challenge I've heard theologically to focusing on the mission was a friend that told me, we're visiting this Baptist church and it's good, but the preacher just keeps beating us up about sharing Christ. It's all he ever talks about. He's always saying, you got to share Christ. And we're getting this like weird kind of legalistic vibe that, that we're all supposed to be guilty if we're not sharing Christ with five people a day. And, and it's just pressure, pressure, pressure. Well, the Bible does this without me saying a word because the summary of the New Testament is you have a mission. You have the Holy Spirit empowering you to do the mission. You have a spiritual gift to grow into the mission. You're growing spiritually in the capacity to love in conducting this mission. I don't have to do it, but I'm excited about it. My friend said, Dave, the problem I've got is there's no love. We're commanded to love. He keeps saying we're commanded to share Christ. And I believe in evangelism, understand, but I think he's missing the love. It's both. And my answer to him is loving someone is not affection unless that's what God wants the person to have from you, like your wife or your husband or your children or your brothers in Christ and stuff. Love is not affection. Love is much bigger than affection. Love is not, uh, I really feel this compulsion to, to give you a hug. I'm a big hugger, getting bigger all the time. And I love you in that interpersonal phileo sort of sense. But the love that we're called, that we're commanded to have is self-sacrificial regard for the other person in which we consider them for what God wants for them. And we'll sa sacrifice our own interests to accomplish that. It's the John three sixteen love. Now, follow me with this for just a second. Jesus commanded John, Matthew, sorry, John 13, 34, love one another as I've loved you. And this will show the world you're my disciples. Love one another as I've loved you, self-sacrificially, looking at what God wants for that person and then as far as you can, bringing that to them. So for most people, it's always prayer, what God wants, God help, you know, praying for the person, but it's also the great commission. What God wants for the non-believer is for them to know Jesus and have his righteousness imputed to them, to have eternal life, to have an eternal relationship with him. That's why God sent the son to die for the sins of the world. What God wants for the unbeliever is salvation. And what God wants for the believer is spiritual growth and mission success in this edifying, spiritually growing life that we call the spiritual life. 
That's the Great Commission. In other words, it isn't God tells us to be on, on mission and to love. He says, love, and this is how, by being on mission. Love these people who need eternal life, whether they need it as unbelievers, they need to come to Christ, or whether they need to grow in their spiritual lives through the teaching of God's word. Either way, it's on mission. And it is the love of God. And I, I, I think that that synthesis will be lost. Seventh, what is the mission? Making disciples through evangelism of unbelievers and edification of believers. That's your mission. That's my mission. I do it the way I do it. You may not do it the way I do it because you don't have the gift that specifically I have because it's a, a, the unique thing God did with me. I don't have the unique thing God is doing in you, but we're all part of the same effort. And that's the machine, that's the body. So there you are, just ducky. I am so sick of being around all these, whatever those things are. Can I find me some mallards? Well, the poor mallard, that's the green one. He needs to be around some other mallards. He's going to go find them. But this is his temporal mission context right now. This is what he's dealing with right now. If I could only be around some other mallards, then I could really edify. Well, it turns out, Connecticut, <laughs> this is how we feel when we go out and about. It's your context. Now, they may all quack back and say no <laughs> when you give them any kind of conversation toward what we're, what we're after. But this is your context. It comes with high taxes, cold winters, and uh, high taxes. You have to be surrounded by people that think if only the government had more power, that would solve our problems. <laughs> Quack, quack, quack. <laughs> and it's, it's godless and so looking for a human solution, just sociology and human psychology and, and all that. But that's your context. And uh, we should thank God for it. Let's do that. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of fellowshipping in your word this morning, considering one another, stir each other up to love and good works. Thank you for the beautiful synthesis of everything you've taught us, whether it's the giving of the spirit, our spiritual gifts, our spiritual growth in the capacity to love, our walk with you, our identification with Christ, our walking with Christ, our union with him, our abiding in him. It all goes back to being pleasing to him in the work that he's prepared for us, that you've prepared for us, that he has directed us into. Father, thank you that whatever our context, we can be pleasing to you. And we need to remember that this work you have for us is bigger than whether we're comfortable or whether we like our circumstances. Father, let us live it. Let us see the opening of hearts to the gospel and the opening of mouths with the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.